This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? You know you do. And that is The Jordan Harbinger Show, a top-notch podcast named Best of Apple in 2018, and has only gotten better. Jordan goes deep with fascinating people, from authors and scientists to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. During his discussions, Jordan pulls out tactical bits of wisdom for you to use to become a more informed, critical thinker. You'll learn and have a good time. He's very easy to listen to. My two recent favorites are Episode 972, Mustafa Suleiman, The Coming Wave of Artificial Intelligence, and Episode 843, Ellie Honig, How the Rich Get Away with Crime. You can't go wrong adding The Jordan Harbinger Show to your rotation. It's incredibly interesting. There's never a dull show. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show, that's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 419, Across the Finish Line. Last time, August 13th, the remaining ships of Pedestal, though strung out, were now just six hours from Malta. To be sure, there were numerous air attacks that day, with both sides losing men and machines. And apparently, the Ohio was to join the list of lost ships, for she was abandoned after the latest air attacks damaged much of the ship's ability to move and steer herself. And yet, Admiral Latham said, make every endeavor. So the plan now was for the destroyer Penn, with the help of the minesweeper Rye and two motor launches, to do just that. Even if they had to push-pull the oil field beast the rest of the way. Against this, the Ohio was slowly sinking. Again, the Axis decision-makers, who decided to split their respective air arms to send half of them against Admiral Seifert's Force Z on its way back to Gibraltar, started kicking themselves. Yes, the news that was coming out of Berlin and Rome was that a mighty enemy convoy had been sunk, which was mostly true, but the plan had never been for all ships to make it. Alas, with Ohio abandoned, however, perhaps the Axis had achieved the next best thing. As each ship got closer to Malta, they came under firmer fighter protection, which is why the last air attack was just before 3 p.m. And at 4.30 p.m., August 13th, Rear Admiral Burrow, who had three merchant ships just behind him, passed them off to Malta's mine-sweeping flotilla. It would be their job to guide the ships through the minefields to get to Grand Harbor. His journey to Malta, with his escorts and those three merchants, was finally over. With Burl were the cruisers Kenya and Charybdis and four of his seven destroyers. Now relieved, they all turned around to make for Gibraltar. His job was done, but not his chances of getting killed. Burl and the other captains hoped that they would be mostly left alone on their way west for their ammunition was low and most of their guns' barrels were melted from overuse. It was the same for the merchant ships. 
On a lighter note with this done, Burrow walked out of his bridge, took off his oil-stained clothes, all of them that he had been wearing for the last three days, and showered right there on the deck in all his natural glory right in front of the crew. A saltwater shower was just what he needed. As noted last time, Force X would safely reach Gibraltar, however, with a few more dents, to be sure. Back to the merchant ships, the very reason of pedestal. At 6.25 p.m., again the 13th, the Melbourne Star, Rochester Castle, and Port Chalmers, having traversed the minefields, entered Grand Harbor. It must be said that Port Chalmers, with Commodore Venables at the helm, who had tried to turn around earlier in this mission, had the only ship that was left unscratched by the enemy's efforts. Whether it was heaven or hell taking care of its own, that's for others to decide. As can be imagined, throngs of people waved and cheered along the harbor as the three ships of salvation came ever closer. In fact, the people cheered themselves hoarse. This was followed by silence, but not just due to sore muscles, but what these ships represented, basically a continuation of the struggle, but a continuation nonetheless. Life could go on and not as vassals of Il Duce. We have seen previously ships that have entered Grand Harbor only to be bombed while there. This could easily happen now, so learning from the past, a system was already in place to get the goods out of those ships ASAP and transport them to underground caves. This got underway. But going back a few hours, as this will affect the story, the destroyer Ledbury, with Hill at the helm, got a message that was mangled to head for the Gulf of Hamamet, just below Cape Bond Peninsula, to search for the crew of the Manchester. Now, two destroyers had already searched for the cruiser, and those men had either been rescued or taken prisoner on shore by Vichy officials. Only later would Hill find out that the message meant to task him with helping the Brisbane Star. Still, he went where he was told, and the Leadbury went looking for men who weren't there, while the destroyer Penn stayed with the Ohio. That destroyer was currently dropping death charges at an Aztec contact. Heading west at 1.45 p.m., the Leadbury sailed past the remains of the Wairama. Lieutenant Commander Roger Hill had his men begin patrolling this area, and at 3.25 p.m., he fell asleep, exhausted, and told them to leave him alone unless the Manchester was spotted. But 20 minutes later, at 3.45 p.m., he was awakened by shouting. Rushing up to the bridge, he saw what all were pointing at. Two planes were coming their way. Hill, who was still half out of it, thought they were Beaufort's and said as much. Fortunately, his crew did not and started firing. As we saw last time, the two Savoyas were downed and their one torpedo barely missed the destroyer. Hence, Hill ordered rum to be given to all on board, minus the one German prisoner. And then came their pirate adventure on land story that yielded nothing which ended this episode. Hill decided to abandon the search and speed back to the Ohio, for he doubted that the pen or any other single destroyer could cope with that scenario. 
Now, skipping ahead almost 24 hours, just for a few minutes, at 3.30 p.m. the next day, Friday, August 14th, the Maltese had another reason to celebrate. The freighter Brisbane Star entered Grand Harbor. She had been going at it alone for the last 200 miles, but besides a torpedo strike 48 hours before this moment, this being alone had served her well. But the story of the Brisbane Star during her lone period is worth telling. According to Lieutenant George Sykes, the ship's naval liaison officer, because their damage only allowed them to travel at 10 knots, it was decided that they would not try to keep up with any other merchantmen, as they would only slow everyone down, so took a more direct path to Malta to save time but also hoped that this, being just north of the normal lane, would keep them safe. When the Brisbane Star reached the Calabia Point, the dreaded e-boats were already gone. Why? Because they had mixed it up earlier with the other merchantmen. Soon, they passed the damaged Glenorchy. But the Brisbane's captain, 46-year-old Fred Riley, got to try his hand at diplomatic relations. When the ship passed by the port of Hamamet, again below the bay and below Calabia Point, think the bottom right corner of the Cape Bon Peninsula, and they were still hugging the coast to get level with Malta, an exchange was started with the port authorities. The Vichy authorities conducted this conversation through lamp signal, and they tried to get the Brisbane to dock, but Riley wasn't falling for that. He made excuses and kept moving, but that was not the end of it. Captain Riley's plan was to hug the coast for the rest of the day of that August 13th, and when the sun fell, to dash directly to Malta. And though everyone on board just knew they were going to be spotted, nothing happened before sunset, and thus the ship turned east. It was then that a French naval gunboat came alongside the Brisbane Star. The French sent an armed boarding party over and told the captain to follow them to the harbor for internment. But Riley, an Irishman, wasn't giving up just yet. Riley invited the two top men to his cabin for, you know, a relaxing glass of whiskey. And while drinking glass after glass, he started in with the old, oh, you know, from one seaman to another, just forget your sauce and let us be on our way, you know, come on, pal. Perhaps it was the whiskey, perhaps it was the comradeship, but either way, the Vichy officials let them go and wished them good luck and a safe voyage. Yet it wasn't the Vichy who were the threat, it was Riley's own crew. Just after the French left, some of the crew approached the captain and said, We can't make it to Malta. The hall won't hold, and besides, there is a sub following us. It's only a matter of time before a torpedo, or two, come our way. The naval liaison officer and the sea transport officer agreed with them. It was time to scuttle the ship and use the lifeboats to make for the harbor at Seuss. Riley was disappointed and a little disgusted with his crew. The best his chief officer, Bob White, could say was that the crew had a strong case. But just as Riley was feeling the pressure, a voice from on high entered. No, not from heaven, but even better, Malta. All those radio calls Riley had put out did go unanswered, but eventually 
something came through. And that message came at this very moment. And it was, the Brisbane Star would have air cover. This would start, though, the morning of August 14th. And for the crew, it was enough to keep them going. But Riley, realizing he was facing a mutiny, could only reply, Get off my bridge. There are several versions of what happened that day when the Brisbane was almost sank. The one story goes that the men at the guns turned those very weapons on the crew that were lining up against the captain. Either way, the ship would go on, not that their chances of dying were over. During the night of the 13th, the Brisbane Star zigzagged while the wireless operators listened to the channels most often used by U-boats. Hey everyone, Ray here. I've been using Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today. And like many of you, I think about my golden years, and I hope they're golden. I have a Roth IRA with Fidelity and another with Merrill, and I have consolidated them into one hub with Yahoo Finance. There, I have access to expert analysis to help me stay atop this ever-changing world. And with Yahoo Finance at my fingertips, I can focus on my goals of paying off my house and getting ready for, you know, me time. And since Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, they know what they're doing. It's the number one finance destination with their independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. With a community of over 90 million users each month, their real strength is helping you on your way to financial success. So, for comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. When light came, so did Malta-based bowfighters, but also a Ju-88. The German plane came in low, the ship's AA guns blazing away. Luckily, the plane's port engine was destroyed, and the Ju-88 was suddenly out of control. Luckily, when the plane dipped, missing one engine as it was, it just barely missed hitting the Brisbane's starboard side. Its two bombs came close to landing on the Brisbane as well, but luckily, they missed, like the plane. The German plane was then chased away by the bowfighters. And as if the crew's nerves could not take any more, a Caproni torpedo bomber came at them from the south. But as it started its attack run, it suddenly burst into flame. Only seconds later did the ship's crew see the bowfighter that had been behind it. Apparently, the Italian pilot had not seen him either and it had cost him his life. As the Brisbane Star pulled into Grand Harbor, its crew, minus one, could only feel relief. Then there was that 17-year-old crew boy who was disappointed because no bands were on the dock to welcome them. Such is the priority of one so young. Pedestal was almost over, and the result, some 32,000 tons of general supplies were in Grand Harbor, but another 52,000 tons were far below the waves of the Mediterranean. And remember the Dorset, stricken, abandoned, burning, but not yet sinking? Well, at 4.48 p.m., back to the 13th, U-boat 73, led by Helmut Rosenbaum, he, the one that had sunk the carrier Eagle, 
earlier in pedestal and would receive the Knight's Cross, put a single torpedo into this burning enemy ship. And it took another seven minutes, but the Dorset's defiance was finally overcome. As things stood, the people of Malta, civilian and military, could go on eating, at starvation levels, of course, for a few more months. That was the good news. But what negated this was that the military personnel did not have the needed high-octane spirit and oil to not only defend the island, but to also project power, hopefully enough, to cut Rommel's lifeline. Again, food was nice, but oil was equally essential. Currently, Alexandria-based subs were bringing fuel in for the 186 planes, all kinds, on the island. This was not enough. Not enough to power the vehicles, generators, warships, and airplanes. No, that amount had to be brought in by a tanker, and there was one out there, but she was only going four knots and might soon have the entire attention of the enemy forces that were all around her. And those four knots became two knots. And after two late morning explosions on board, destroying both boilers, the Ohio quit moving. Suddenly, the crew missed those two knots very much. But backing up a bit, as covered, the Ohio was set upon, on the 13th, by 26 JU-88s and 7 HE-111 torpedo bombers throughout the day. Added onto this would be five Italian Stukas, escorted by 24 Italian MC-202 fighters. Of all these, six enemy planes would not make it home, but more damage had been done to the Ohio, and as we have seen, to the point where she was temporarily abandoned and her engines unable to perform. But, as the order of the day was, make every endeavor, the crew, now resting on the pen, were ready to go back. Fred Larson, the third mate of the Santa Elisa, now on the pen as well, helped some of the Ohio's crewmen transfer the tanker's Borforus captain, Peter Brown. He had been crushed by the ship's engine room ventilator. It was six feet square and very heavy. But staying focused, Larson then started looking at the Ohio's Borforus, as he guessed they would need repairing, and he was just the man, as he had been trained to do that. And if the Navy guys could get the Ohio moving, someone would have to man the tanker's guns. Fred Larson wanted in on that as well. For one, he was well-trained and experienced. Two, he wanted to leave the pen because it was so overcrowded. And three, he really hated the Germans, as his wife and yet unseen son were trapped in German-occupied Norway. He had motivation, and now he had means— once the guns were repaired. It's worth noting that as Admiral Burroughs Force X steamed west back to the rock, they sailed a good 10 miles south of the Ohio's position, for they assumed that the tanker would be drawing all kinds of enemy planes, and Burrow had his orders to get Force X back in one piece, and he would do that. 
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. As the evening of the 13th continued on, Captain Mason of the tanker Ohio was asleep on the pen, his part supposedly done, while the pen tried to drag the Ohio along with the minesweeper Rye trying to steady the old girl. When the destroyer Brahmin arrived, she started a slow circle around the Ohio just in case some enemy sub tried to be a bit too enterprising. It was then that the enemy planes returned. The captain of the Rye recorded the following. At 8.24 p.m., 12 bombs fell within 20 yards of the Rye, covering her with spray and splinters, but doing no effective damage. That was the good news. The bad news was that this attack and the others forced the pen to untie herself and the Rye to offer up a better defense. Of course, that meant the Ohio would just sit there until it was moved by another object or sunk by a bomb. Fred Larson and Lonnie Dales of the Santa Elisa, knowing it was better to be busy than having time to think, especially during an attack, helped move a man from the Empire Hope whose legs had been broken. After this, the two men were separated, and Lonnie Dales went to go sit with the chief engineer of the pen. The older man, seeing that Lonnie was scared and knew he did not have the power to stop any of this, simply talked to the younger Dales to distract him. Dales tells the story. I think he sensed that I was uneasy, and he tried to make me feel better by telling me that the plating was so thin on the decks of the destroyers that a bomb would probably pass right through. He told me if you could hear the bombs, don't worry about them, because they're going to miss you. This is a matter of physics, sound going out in concentric circles. He said, you'll never hear the bomb that kills you. At 8.14 p.m., the general alarm bell sounded. A gunner yelled out, two points on the starboard quarter. Meanwhile, the pen's toe line was cut, and she raced forward, back into action. What happened next was, while the pen went around and around the Ohio, shooting all the while at the incoming planes, those planes passed overhead again and again, until all their bullets and bombs were gone. When that happened, the Ohio was still there. The planes headed north for Sicily. With that done, the tow line was made fast again, and the journey continued as before, again at four knots. Soon after, at 8.52 p.m., the last air attack was done. The Ohio, the Penn, the Rye, and the other ships were still there. This time, the Rye was put in front to tow, while the Penn stayed just behind the tanker. There were several hours of going at four knots that the crew probably thought would last forever, but things can always get worse, and did so at 1.07 a.m., now August 14th. The housers, that is, the thick rope for mooring or for towing, split apart. The strain 
was simply too much for them. Which is when Captain Eddie Baines of the Brahmin opened his mouth. Technically, Baines was a lieutenant, and a very young one at that, but he had been around ships for most of his life. His suggestion, crazy as it was, was based on experience and perhaps a bit of desperation. Baines suggested, as Captain Swain of the pen was his superior, of strapping the two destroyers to either side of the tanker, and the rye could help out as well. And this configuration would not only help steer the damaged tanker, but stop her, or at least slow her down, from sinking. And when the pen came alongside the starboard side of the Ohio, the men jumped over to help. Fred Larson was one of them. No one asked him to, but he went over and headed right for the guns. If he could repair them and help use them, then the Ohio and her contents had that much greater of a chance to survive. Lonnie Dales, independently, had also gone over. They moved out with this configuration, and things seemed to be going well. Except soon it was dark, and progress got harder, with a lack of visual aid. Time went by, and each screeching sound unnerved Captain Swain, who couldn't take it anymore. At 3 a.m., Swain had the destroyer pen removed from the Ohio, which went back to being the world's most expensive buoy. Fred Larson knew that someone would come up with something, so he stayed focused on what he could do. He was only one of 20 men on the Ohio, and each tried to find something to fix or to get an estimate of how bad the damage was. Larson would later write, All the lifeboats were gone. All the floats, the flotation equipment, was all gone out of the racks. Most of the guns were inoperative. The engine was disabled. The steering gear had been torpedoed, and the rudder couldn't operate anymore. We tried to get it to work by hooking up emergency steering gear. I was down there in the steering gear room with flashlights, and we tried to hook up the emergency steering gear. I think it was already rigged. In the end, the ship could not steer itself without the propulsion of the ship's propeller. It would have to be some other force. He continued, I examined the armament and found some of the Ehrlichans in operating order. The five-inch gun on the stern was not repairable, as a Stuka had crashed on it and totally destroyed it. There was debris from the bomb that landed near the funnel all over the place, asbestos powder and junk. But the only thing wrong with the bore for a cannon was a shell jammed in the breech. The Ohio would sit there until 4.20 a.m. when another attempt was made. Problem was, it would be light soon, and though close to Malta, the enemy would, of course, make another air raid, or two, against the Ohio and its most precious cargo. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So I just wanted to take a moment and thank uh, and say hi to the latest members and those that have donated. Again, trying to help this family get through uh, a tough time. <clears throat> Suffice it to say that American health care sucks. Anyway, so um, that's enough of that. So um, as far as the latest members, I would like to say welcome aboard to James Hall from Livermore, California, Tom Maroney from Hermosa Beach, California, Lawrence Waters from Ontario, Canada, Gary, uh, let's see here, Ray Sanin from Tokyo, Japan, sorry Gary for butchering that, 
John McClone from Townsend, Maryland, Daniel Shapiro from Altadena, California. And as far as those making donations, uh, thank you to Bruce Anthony, Daniel Massanoni. I'm not sure if I'm saying that right, Daniel. I apologize very much. I actually tried to look it up and I couldn't get something that made sense. Uh, Robert Kastner and Vlad from Luxembourg. So Vlad, thank you very much. Thank you very much to all of you. And I will see you soon. We are getting very close to the end of Operation Pedestal. We just have to go through the incredible story that is the Tanker Ohio. And then we can go back to the Eastern Front. Thank you very much for the donations, for the support. It means a lot to us. I cannot stress that enough. And as always, take care, everyone.